Welcome to Linux Link Radio by TimeSys, the podcast for embedded Linux developers who want to simplify and speed up their custom platform development. Visit timesys.com today for access to our podcast archives. Hi, this is Gene Sally. Welcome to Linux Link Radio. This podcast, we're fortunate in that we have Fayad Abdi, and he is a senior FAE with Ultimate Solutions, which is a company that is in like tools and services for embedded developers. And one of the things that Fayad has worked with over the time I've known him is uh, hardware debuggers. But JTAG emulators. Thank you very much. See, I know that I know the domain, right? But he's worked with JTAG emulators and hardware debuggers for Ultimate Solutions for sort of, geez, I think about five years, right? That's right. Wow. And that's how you got sort of uh, stuck in this embedded situation. We're really happy because we know we get a lot of folks that ask us about hardware debuggers. And between Macha and I, we really don't have a a really good handle on some of the deeper technical aspects. So uh, we figured we'd twist someone's arm. I I think I uh, I bribed Fayed to talk to us. I I know you you were in Pakistan for a while. We wanted to get you earlier. Yeah, I uh, had a little tough time getting back, but yeah. unfortunately I had my brother's wedding and uh, everything turned out pretty good in the end, and I'm back. Well, that's really cool. So we wanted to get you earlier, but you get to spend some extra family time that's um, right, yeah. Yeah, before you made it back to the States. Absolutely, yeah. So we'll just start at the beginning. For folks that may hear the word JTAG or hardware debugger and not know what it means or have a, maybe a vague idea what it means, just explain that to me. Let's sort of go back uh, to, you know, say the 1980s when, you know, the first concept of actually testing your silicon actually came out. What was happening back then was, you know, you have to test your board, you have to test your silicon, and now as your silicon devices are becoming more and more complicated and, you know, the pins are growing on it, it became exponentially more harder to actually test your ICs. So in the mid-1980s, a group was formed called the Joint Access Test Group that was responsible for, you know, making a specification to solve this this issue. So what, what ultimately happened was there was a consortium of 200 companies or so that came together and made this JTAG specification, which was ratified, put into the IEEE 1149.1, which is what we refer to as JTAG nowadays. The bottom line is all the test points that were first being used on your board and they would take up so much real estate on your board were moved onto the IC themselves. And then the serialized protocol called JTAG was then implemented to take all the data out of your device. So basically, instead of using an in-circuit emulator, for instance, which was a clunky mechanism, it would interface to all the different pins on your IC. Now, for instance, we've gone from 10 pins to 1,000-pin ICs. Now it became really, really hard, and they're all micro ball grid array pins, so it becomes really hard to get the data out of those pins. So now instead of reading those pins, the data from those pins can be read out from the chip itself through the serialized protocol called JTAG. Let's rewind for oh, so I get this. So instead of having, that's very interesting. So it's something that will return to you the state of all the pins that are being measured. Uh, pins and the internal state of the device. It was uh, you know the pins. Uh, it, it depends on which mode you decide to use your JTAG in. There's a boundary uh-huh. scan mode that can give you uh, different levels of functionality. One functionality is, for instance, if you wanted to do uh, board level tests and you want to see you know how your ICs are connected to each other. In which case, you'd be interested in seeing you know the activities on the pins themselves. Okay. 
so go back to boundary scan for a second. Sure. So I just don't understand that. If I were, if Maciej was here, he'd probably want to. I don't. Well, boundary scan is is just uh, a name for the specification that they've decided to use. You know, it's the different functions of the I, IEEE 11.1149.1 uh, specification. One of them is this boundary scan function. Now, basically, it scans your chip and uh, it returns. You know, basically the data as to which pins are connected to what. This sort of gives you an idea of how your chip is supposed to be laid out on your board. Okay, so it's like a very, very sophisticated continuity test. Yes. That's Interesting. what you use it for, yes. Okay, so that's almost to ver- verify something like manufacturing defects. Exactly. Okay. Well, I am thinking. What do you know? Okay. So let's go back to the other mode, which is, so I think when you talk about using a debugger, you're probably using not the boundary scan mode. No, the boundary scan is, of course, one part of this JTAG puzzle. The other part that we're more interested in and what our company actually you know, does its business in is the debugging aspect. So, for instance, you, know, you want to actually, you have a functioning chip now and you want to execute code on it. So now the 1149.1 spec also supports on-chip debugging capabilities, sort of an ICE emulation model. Ah, okay. It's now also been implemented on the chip itself. So part of that... IEEE 1149.1 spec, the JTAG spec, is also the ability to take in your ICE module, which was otherwise external, and implement it right on the chip itself. So that gives you the ability to set breakpoints, step through your code, all through JTAG. So now you have, once again, the serialized packet protocol that's bringing out all this data and functionality through the JTAG interface. Oh, interesting. So actually, most of the, we'll call it hard work, is happening on the chip. That's right. And if, if your IC vendor is following the um, I, IEEE 1149.1 spec, then you know, all the hard work is taken care of by that. And really, all you need is you know, the interface device to it, which is the JTAG emulator, to talk to that controller that sits on your IC itself. It's called the TAP controller, which is what every JTAG device eventually talks to. You said TAP is in TAP? Yes, TAP. Test access point. Interesting. So if you go to a, a company and they have this device, really what they're selling is a TAP, because you say, I have a JTAG debugger and a, you know you support, but really what you're talking about is a TAP controller. Oh, no, the TAP controller actually sits on the IC itself, so on the chip. The, what the JTAG emulator does, uh-huh. it knows how to talk to that TAP controller. So the basic JTAG spec has five pins, TDI, TDO, TMS, T-Reset, and Reset, I think, or T-Reset. Uh-huh. And using these five pins, your JTAG device would then input and output commands to read back, you know, from that TAP controller the current state it's in or, you know, all the different lists of commands that that TAP controller supports. Uh, by the way, you can actually add more commands. The IEEE 41.1149.1 uh, spec is pretty flexible with respect to adding, you know, more commands per, you know, depending on the needs of the IC itself. Is that dynamic? Or is that something you have to sort of build? So in this JTAG emulator, you have to build in some firmware or something that knows how to recognize those different and work with those different commands. Yes, since each IC has a different, you know, a, a, it, it follows a subset of the commands of the IEEE 1149.1. So it, there are basic commands that you have to implement. And then, of course, you know, on top of that, whichever commands need to be added, depending, you know, if, if for instance, you're working with a MIPS architecture versus 
ARM versus Xscale versus PowerPC, they've all been customized now. Okay. So now as you're talking to these different processors, they, they all you know, have their own implementation of the 1149.1 spec. So now your JTAG emulator needs to be able to know the differences between, between how to talk to these different uh, versions, implementations of the 1149.1 spec. Okay, so it's, it's sort of like the non-standard standard then, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Everyone gets to do their own thing, yet yet adhere to the standard. Well, it's it's they, they follow uh, certain guidelines, yes. But then you know, once it gets to actually implementing the command set, they can expand it. Okay, and I'm sure it's like one of the value adds that those chip vendors offer is better or different functionality that uh, behind that tap controller. To a certain degree, there's uh, the on-chip emulation can do a lot of nifty things on the processor but at this current point in time it's evolved to to the point where most of the chip vendors are you know offering about the same capability interesting yes let's apply this to linux okay okay so when you're doing something like debugging a linux kernel how does both this software right there's some software that's going on and this ice emulator how does that work together for you to do something like Debug code, you know, on on this okay. on this board. It, it just walk me through the steps. Okay. Well, well, first of all, let's let's first make a distinction here okay. between Linux and just running bare metal code on your target. That's inter- okay. So I have a question. So why would you make that distinction? Well, uh, for one thing, let's just think about what Linux does. Okay. Uh, you know, the very first thing when you're trying to port Linux to a target is you know you read the requirements uh-huh. for you know what 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 needs to be you know what sort of hardware do you need to actually run Linux. What sort of processor do you need? Okay. Well, you need an MMU-enabled processor that has an MMU that you can enable virtual memory in. It needs to have a certain amount of that memory and you know a certain amount of SDRAM before you can actually start booting up Linux. Okay. Now, but the real key here is that Linux requires an MMU. Okay. Which means that it, that your your memory, once it's initialized, it's going to be virtual memory. Okay. Now, this is a real big key for for emulation. Because now, as Linux boots up, it enables this virtual memory, and now all your addresses are virtual. Okay. Emulators, by default, talking through the tap controller, will always talk to physical memory. There, there's some implementations, depending on the processor, where they will indeed talk through, through the MMU, but for the most part, they have direct physical access to memory. Okay. And so just, and just in case, I'm, I, I apologize if this doesn't, you know, for those who are rolling their eyes saying, yeah, everyone knows this. But when you talk about doing something like MMU, with that, and this is how I understand it. So what that means is that the address that you have may not map into the same physical address. Yeah, well, let me give you an example. So Once uh, your MMU is sort of a translation layer. So yeah. on one side, you have your physical address. And then on the other side, you have your virtual address. Okay. And uh, the MMU has several entries into it called page table entries. And okay. each one of those entries tells you which physical address corresponds to which virtual address. Okay. So it's really just a big, you know, translation buffer. You can think of it Got as, it. you know, just translating between physical and virtual memory. Now, the interesting part is that once that MMU is kicked on, once it's turned on, all applications or, you know, the kernel accessing memory will go through this emulation layer, through this translation layer. So that means if you have an instruction that says fetch one byte from address five, that address five will be run through a run through that translation layer and then mapped into some other physical address of memory that's... 
that's exactly some number right. plus five, right? That's exactly right. So okay. your that number five might not correspond to physical memory, but virtual memory. Got it. And now it has to translate into virt into physical memory. Now that physical memory could be mapped anywhere in your physical memory space. So got it. So once again, let me let me just explain why this is so advantageous. You know, you might only have two megabytes of SD RAM. Uh-huh. available on your system. Okay. But through this emulation layer, now you can enable almost 32 megs, for instance, okay. of memory. And you know, through using clever techniques, you can swap out that memory and make that two megabytes look like it is 32 megs by having this, this humongous translation layer in the middle. Okay. Where were we going with this again? I oh, yeah. <laughs> That's okay, I do all the time. We were were explaining what's so special about Linux. Well, yeah, because I know one of the things we talked, one of the things that we were sort of bouncing on was how that translation, that address translation wreaks havoc with something like a JTAG debugger that is just looking at physical addresses without the the advantage of the translation table. Absolutely. See, I was listening. Now, now when you start thinking about the repercussions of this, Uh your your program code, as as it's executing, you have something called a program counter that's executing code step by step, and it it goes through each instruction at a time in in your memory system. That program counter is now pointed to some virtual address as your as your Linux is booted up and it's enabled this virtual addressing. Now that program counter is stepping code through, you know, that's located in your virtual memory. So it's pointing off to some, you know, virtual memory space that in turn points to, you know, physical memory. Okay. Your debugger, if it's not aware of this, it's going to think that that program counter is actually physical memory. Ah, so it so so it needs to have some sort of translation table as well. Exactly, it needs to be aware and know that this address that I'm seeing is not a physical address. How do you overcome that? Well, uh, how does one overcome that? I'm, if I'm, you want to overcome that, you basically uh, it's, the implementation is simple. First of all, you need to make the debugger aware by uh-huh. through a switch or you know some other mechanism that there is this. MMU layer that's been enabled. Yeah. And secondly, your debugger needs to be able to access those entries in your MMU, those those page table entries I referred to. And be able to read them and be able to translate that, hey, this memory address, this virtual memory address translates to this physical address. So it almost needs it almost needs another little MMU unit inside of it to do the same sort of processing. Yes. What it needs to do is actually access the MMU unit in okay. your in your chip. Okay. Processor and be able to read those table entries out from it. Okay. Now, now keep in mind the trick here is that Linux enters those page table entries in a different way than some other operating system might. So those entries might not be, you know, uh, might change depending on even the versions of Linux that you're using. Oh, okay. And you know, one of the things that we deal here with the time is frequently as well is I have debugger X, brand X, right? And I have kernel Y, pick some number. And they'll say, well, does that work together? Can, can I do that? And I'm guessing that, that you know, that's probably the side effect, uh, I should say, I'm guessing. But, I mean, obviously, it's the side effect of the, the way Linux puts data in those page tables such that the software doesn't keep up to date. So it doesn't know how to read them and translate the addresses to do debugging properly. Are you, are you talking about, you said debugger, are you talking about you know, using a hardware like a JTAG emulator? Like a JTAG emulator. Well, well. Once again, like I said, it depends on you know the the JTAG emulator and if they have enabled the support for being able to read the MMU out and being able to translate it. Okay. Did I answer your question? 
Yeah, I think so. That seems to make sense. It's 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 starting to gel for me. So if if you think about the the present state of Linux and family JTAG debuggers out there, you, you, what sort of success do most customers have? Is it fairly difficult, or have, have most vendors sort of sorted out those? The, uh, the, for uh, the technical issues by getting there, are, there are more and more JTAG vendors now that are that are supporting Linux. Yeah. But the puzzle doesn't really just stop right there and, and just enabling this MMU layer. There, there's actually a little bit more that goes into supporting Linux. For instance, you have to make sure as the Linux kernel is booting up, uh, it doesn't touch certain hardware registers that are important to the debugger itself. Now, for instance, in several processors, there's an MSR bit that needs to be set before you can actually stop your car, uh, actually hit a breakpoint. So it's called the debug enable bit. What, what is it? The MSR is debug? It's the mas- machine state register, which determines, uh. you know, which interrupts can be enabled or basically that your, that your processor will take. So now there's an interrupt called debug enable, which is what needs to be enabled for a JTAG emulator. Okay. To actually be able to hit breakpoints. Okay. So there's just a couple of tricks here with every different architecture that you have to make sure that, you know, these various register bits or, you know, register settings that are important for a JTAG emulator are not touched. Okay. So, for instance, you would enable in your kernel a special switch. There's one that exists in in regular Linux kernel uh, under the kernel hacking section. Yeah. Through enabling that, that switch, you will now tell your kernel that, I have a JTAG emulator now connected, and I don't want to touch these certain bits that will, you know, otherwise cause my my JTAG emulator not to function with this Linux kernel. I see. From it, the ICE functionality will not function otherwise. Oh, cool! This is very enlightening for me. I'm learning a ton. The other question I get from customers, I, I know the answer to this, is about using one of these ICE debuggers for debugging things in in user land. And that usually comes from customers that are former, they've used other operating systems which are a little bit more monolithic than Linux. Operating systems where you have your applications and your kernel on this big shared address space. Right. Well, that sort of answers your own question. Yeah. Because when you start thinking about how the Linux kernel works, you realize after your application is actually started, it's going to swap memory out constantly in the background to, you know, for optimal performance. Yeah. Now, what's happening uh, when that's happening? Every time your your application loses priority, some other application comes into you know the local memory, and uh, you know that that your previous application might be swapped out. So the addresses are constantly changing. So you don't necessarily uh, the variables, for instance, might not reside in the same uh, physical address space, yeah. but they might be you know in the same virtual address space, but that virtual address might shift to a different physical, physical address. Physical address, yeah, at, at any ra- at random intervals. Yes. So, I mean, and, that- and like I mentioned before, the emulator will always access your physical memory. So once you tell it that, you know, this variable is sitting at this physical address, the emulator really doesn't want it to shift. Interesting. As soon as, as soon as your application swaps out of memory, in and out of memory, you start screwing that up. Yeah. I, can I, I can't use that word, can I? No, well, you can use the word screwing it up. Right. We screw up stuff all the time. It, it, <laughs> okay. Pretty much, uh, that's pretty much the whole thing. Okay, so that makes makes a load of sense. The other thing I have is I want to ask you about what do you see coming? What sort of over the horizon do you think people that use these sort of devices will see some benefits? 
more and more uh, in the future, I think as far as uh, the JTAG emulation capabilities are concerned, it's, it's been pretty, uh, you know, the, the IEEE 1149.1 spec has been, I think, maxed out. Everybody knows what it's about. Everybody loves it and what it can do. The future is not going to be so much JTAG as it is, you know, using wrist trace or, or trace capabilities. So now, if you look at the new capabilities vendors are offering, they're finding that JTAG is actually, now now that the chip sizes have increased so much, JTAG is actually becoming a bottleneck. Your JTAG bus is running at 32 megahertz. And now these ICs have grown to, you know, billions of little mini circuits inside, you know, one IC. So to be able to test all of those, you need a faster interface. Oh, okay. So now people are moving to a wrist trace header, for instance. Okay. That operates at 200 megahertz as opposed to, you know, the 32 kilohertz or, or sorry, uh, the 16 megahertz speed that JTAG offers. Okay. And it's just, you know, and you have trace buffers in your chips now and, and you can access those through JTAG, but you'll be accessing them through wrist trace. So more and more in the future, we'll see a transition away from JTAG and towards tracing and wrist trace. So when you talk about tracing and, and wrist trace, tracing you mean by some recording of all the operations that I've run on the computer for a certain amount of time? It's There's a little buffer uh, depending on your chip and your chip vendor, some of the higher and chips these days are coming out with little two meg caches on the chip itself. They'll store this this trace buffer. Okay. And then you have, you know, of course, your Mictor connector that's, you know, running at 200 to 300 megahertz, downloading that uh, or uploading, um, I should say downloading that information off the chip. Oh, cool. Yes. Huh. Yeah, I, I have heard that I mean, through some of our partners about the coming of trace. Yes. And they view that as the... It's the not here yet, call. but it's it's the future for sure. Interesting. Thank you very much. I mean, I learned a ton. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to come and talk to us. And, no problem. And uh, understand what's going on. And uh, Fayette is, is really... I really do appreciate it. Maybe if, uh, if I didn't scare you off, we can have you on again. Okay. All right. Thanks. Well, thank you very much. All right. Thanks. Mm, bye. And uh, thanks for listening. You can always get in touch with us at linuxlinkradio.com. Uh, there's a link there for email, uh, which is podcast at timesys.com. Uh, we get a lot of email, and we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we try to respond to everything that we get in, uh, although sometimes just we don't do it in a timely manner. So if you write, you said we will read your, your message and reply back to you when we can. Timesys will also be at Embedded World in Germany, I think it's in Nuremberg, and that's uh, booth 11-113. That's February 26th through 28th. Mache will be there on hand if you want to talk to him, but I don't think they're going to do any recording equipment or anything. We wanted to get some interviews from folks while we were there, but we just uh, we couldn't get that all sorted out in time. So again, thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments uh, in an email, please send them to us, podcast.timesus.com, and drop by and uh uh, listen to us at linuxlinkradio.com. We have a bunch of episodes there. In fact, all of our, any episode we've recorded, we have uh, available on that page. So thanks a lot. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by Timesys. Are you new to embedded Linux? Looking for a way to simplify your next project? The Linux Link service by Timesys makes it easy to build your custom embedded Linux platform. Go to timesys.com today or call 866 392 4897 to learn more.